0: Welcome to episode 1329 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined not today by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, who was unavailable at this particular time, but by co-host Emeritus, ESPN's own Sam Miller. Hello. Welcome back, Sam. Uh, Hello. Yeah.
1: Ben, I I would just like to note that normally when you turn on a podcast, you're listening to a podcast and they start the episode and... The you know one guest introduces the or one one host introduces the the other host or the guest host and yeah. says hi how are you and the other one says good and you think well that's weird didn't they just talk for twenty minutes beforehand and yes they did but in this case I had not said a word yet to Ben that was real podcast you said, talk right you there. said
0: hi I think when I said hi I well I said
1: hi but you were already I I thought that you were already muted when I said hi so I logged oh. onto this thing and I said uh, hi. <laughs> or, or when you logged on, I said, hi, but you yeah. have a, you, you log on pre-muted. Yes. And so then, uh, you didn't respond in any way. <laughs> and then <laughs> 80 seconds later, you came on and said something like, okay, <laughs> all right," And then
0: that started that. So, yeah, well, we had been G chatting throughout the day. So I felt like we were picking it up with that conversation yeah. as opposed to not having talked for a while. So okay. Yeah, we, uh, in a few minutes, will be bringing on Russell Carlton of Baseball Prospectus, late of Baseball Prospectus, I guess, our most frequent guest, I think, during our time doing this podcast together. And he is leaving Baseball Prospectus after a very long stint to go work for the New York Mets. So we're going to talk to him about that. But a few minutes before we do that, how are you handling the January doldrums? You you always had a a smart approach to the offseason, I think, which was that you had like franchises that you would trot out for the very slow months where you would have certain ideas and articles that you would bring back year after year probably more during the BP days than you do now, but but you still do it. Like what the, the least exciting game of the year was uh-huh. a thing that you did for a while. You, yeah. know, you do the most defining memory of the year now that's a, a new franchise. Uh-huh. That is smart. I don't have any series that I can just keep going back to in these weeks when there's nothing to do.
1: I don't like having the series. Um, <laughs> usually, the, the uh, I, I think I have a lot of things I did twice and then the second one, I felt really burnt out by the time I, I was on the second one and then I never did it again. I mm-hmm. always had a hard time repeating an idea and not just wanting to block quote huge parts from the first time yeah. I did it. But I did do worst game of the year at least three, maybe four times. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a fun one. I liked that one. Yeah, that was great. That was yeah. fun. That,
0: that's, those are,
1: that might be my, that and, uh, I also, uh, the world series I would do, uh, the oh team's right! Fans, remember those? Oh
0: yeah. Well, now you kind of do like uh, something about each player on the team. Is a no, that was yeah, that was
1: a, yeah, or... a first time thing though. Uh huh. Well,
0: you've done similar things in the past where it was like uh, reasons to root for people on certain teams or something. I have I done know. that twice. You're right. out of ideas, is what I'm saying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Every once in a while, I really will be out of ideas, and I'll I'll think, oh well, I'll just go look at what I did this week last year. <laughs> and uh, it hardly ever applies. But I do like the off-season as a as a time. I mean, the off-season is great because everything has stopped. And so you don't have to worry about your article becoming more outdated
0: mm-hmm. by the time you finish it. Yeah, it's so nice to be able to say last season. I just love that when you can switch over to last season or even better, last year, when you can just do that and everything is final and it's locked away in yeah. that year and can't change ever again.
1: I have, uh, in this case, the January doldrums have been. I've actually, uh, you're gonna be surprised by this, but because uh, neither one of us ever did this at all at Baseball Perspectives. But I have been filing articles for later. Oh wow! Yeah, I have. <laughs> I have filed an article for June. What? <laughs> I have filed two articles for late March. I oh, have goodness. filed an article for next Wednesday. Which even <gasps> that. Yeah, <laughs> pretty extreme. And I have filed two articles for news that will eventually happen.
0: Huh. Wow. I Are know. these like features that are, it's just pegged to a certain news event? This is incredible. Pa- I- yeah, pe- basically huh. pegged to either
1: news events or, or the calendar.
0: Wow, yeah. I expressed my wonder at Grant Brisby's story recently on the podcast about, about having pre-written his little league story and then forgotten that he did that. But both of those things were baffling to me. But wow,
1: yeah, Look Ben. At you. Ben, uh, for people who uh, who uh, never followed Ben when he was the editor of Baseball Perspectives, which there probably are a fair number of people, uh, but Ben had a funny little thing at Baseball Perspectives, which is that Baseball Perspectives had traditionally always been like you just publish everything in the morning. And it kind of gave it the feeling that it was a daily, like a daily newspaper or a daily magazine. Mm-hmm. And so you could wake up and go, what's baseball Perspectives got today? Mm-hmm. Um, and you could read it in the morning. And then, you know, for the most part you you wouldn't come back until the next day. You might mm-hmm. read it in the afternoon, you might read it in the morning, you might read it whenever, but he kind of knew it was all going to happen all at once. And There had been efforts every once in a while to kind of have more stuff during the the day and uh, hope people would come back. But, you know, no one was really coming back because we had this rhythm. And so if you published something at at 3.30 in the afternoon, unless it was breaking news, unless it was a transaction analysis for Rob Robinson Cano signing or something like that, it wasn't going to it would get like 12 views in the afternoon. (laughs) And so that was just how we always did it. And then Ben just started publishing things as soon as he got them. Like, he would finish an article. He started with his. So he would write an article, and then he would just publish it. And (laughs) even though it was 6.25 p.m. And then he started, I think, doing that, arguing to do that for some of mine. And I thought that it was because he was trying to maybe train people to come back during the day. But, no, you just said, well, I mean, it's not going to get fewer views if it's up (laughs) longer. Like, it it exists now like mm-hmm. time is only going one direction
0: <laughs> yeah
1: and so why have it exist for less time in public mm-hmm. than for more time and so you we just started publishing articles but the problem was that then sometimes wouldn't sometimes they would then look like they were the previous days and people Oh say, yeah, you'd
0: have to move the publication yeah, date just to time or something. That yep. story didn't turn out as good as I thought it would. <laughs> Remember that time that you had a series where you were rereading and blogging about Nate <laughs> Silver? Mate Silver ever wrote? <laughs> <laughs> I also have
1: uh Baseball's 7 Wonders.
0: Which I think <laughs> yeah, I got. That's right. I think I got four. Uh, yeah, we never <laughs> found out what the other. <laughs> there've probably been more wonders since then. Maybe I wonder. I know huh. what
1: one of them would be. I think, <laughs> but yeah, what I did: Mariano Rivera's postseason, Mike Trout's mm-hmm. rookie season, Ricky Henderson's old age, and Kerry Wood's twenty strikeout game, and then I just stopped.
0: <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> that one I was still working on. I think, like, if you look at it, I think a couple of them came pretty late. But, yeah, Nate, so I did a that was an that was a January doldrums, wasn't it? or probably. yeah, it was it know. was because it was when i was it was when I was editing the annual for the first time, and I didn't I was too busy to write features for you. Like I didn't have the mental space to write pebble hunting for mm-hmm. you. It was just too hard for me to think of a full piece. So I thought I would make Joe Hamrahi happy by filing these daily pieces that were smaller. And I so I was rereading every article Nate Silver ever wrote at Baseball Perspectives, starting with the original one. And <laughs> I would read it, react to it, summarize it, and if uh if it was something with research, which it usually was, I would then try to re recreate the research with updated with, with the you know, fifteen years of, of stats that it happened since then to see if it's still held up. Yeah. And then I stopped.
0: <laughs> right. I was just thinking the other day how incredible it is. That Nate was at baseball prospectus for as long as he was. Like he was at BP longer than either of us was, I think, right? He was there for what, six years at least? Seven years, something like that, which is Pretty amazing. That's quite a run, given how he has ascended in the world, or at least expanded and and come to the attention of many more people in the years since then. Because BP people cycle in and out. We're about to talk to one who is cycling out, and people generally go on to bigger baseball sites and media sites, or they go work for a team or something. But Nate has become a celebrity, a, a nerd celebrity, at least, and. He was there for a really long time, and uh, that's it sort of surprises me in retrospect. Hmm. Okay. You had uh, something that you wanted to talk about before we bring Russell in here. Yeah,
1: real quick. I probably probably won't be real quick. I got a book recommendation a couple, maybe, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago from Matt Trueblood. I think it was. Yeah, it was. Who recommended that I read Willie Mays, The Life, The Legend, a biography of Willie Mays by James Hirsch. And I forget what he said, but he he had some some praise for it that it's just like it's like chock full of goodness or something and so I got it and read it a pretty pretty deliberately i read it I've read it a little bit at a time for about a year. I read it very slowly but enthusiastically because truly this book has something on every page that you're like, what <laughs> How how was life like that, or how was baseball like that, or how did that thing happen, or that's hysterical? Huh. And sometimes I tweeted periodically. I would they would be so good. I would tweet. I took a lot of pictures of of this book for later use. And mm-hmm. there's one detail though that I wanted to bring up, which is that in 1962, Orlando Cepeda was Willie Mays' teammate, and Alvin Dark was Willie Mays' manager. So I'm going to read a little bit here. Okay. Cepeda's troubles with Alvin Dark resurfaced at the end of 1962 with the publication of an article in Look magazine that Cepeda thought would describe him as the best right-handed hitter in baseball. The article, however, was called Orlando Cepeda. Can he slug his way out of the doghouse? (laughs) In it, Dark described his heretofore secret grading system for players. Unhappy with such conventional measures as batting average, home runs, errors, and stolen bases, he wanted to evaluate more precisely how players contributed to winning games. So he devised his own system of pluses and minuses. Thus, a home run in the first inning might get one plus, while a homer in the ninth that won a game might get four. There were pluses and minuses for everything, but the system was highly subjective and no one besides Dark understood it regardless he explained to look that mays graded out the best and jim davenport was second but cepeda quote he had more minuses than anybody dark said (laughs) so i'm i will just point out that i said that there's something on every page that's like wow and just in that paragraph which is not even what i want to talk about you just got an idea for a baseball prospectus unfiltered (laughs) right like alvin dark's grading system <laughs> at is is rich with potential. Mm-hmm. But here's what I actually want to talk Cepeda did slump during the stretch drive in 1962, but given his numbers, 306 batting, 35 homers, 114 RBIs, as well as his track record of four consecutive All-Star games, Dark's evaluation was hard to fathom. In 1966, when Mays testified in a libel suit that Cepeda brought against Look, What? (laughs) Orlando Cepeda sued the magazine for Alvin Dark's player metric system. And so I uh, looked this up. And I I, I am going to write about this someday. So everybody, back off. But I looked this up. And it is true that Cepeda sued Look Magazine for libel. And it went to trial. He lost and then it went to appeal, and the original verdict was upheld, and so he lost, okay? You can (laughs) say that a ball player's first inning home runs, or whatever Alvin Dark was trying to get at, make him a bad player, if you want to. And this came right, the article was written before, but the ruling came after New York Times versus Sullivan, which is a uh, famous ruling that journalism students all learn, uh, and probably other people that basically says that the libel standard for public officials is extremely high. It's very high, right? And mm-hmm. that was expanded from public officials, I believe, then to, to public figures. And that was part of what was at issue in the Cepeda suit is whether he was a public official or not. Uh, I mean, he's not. Uh, so whether this applied to him, but anyway, he lost. And I just wanted to ask you how you think baseball would be different <laughs> if he had won.
0: So he sued the magazine, but he was managed by Alvin Dark at the time, and for two years after that, so he he never he he never sued alvin Dark directly i I, I don't wonder. know if he sued Alvin Dark directly, but it doesn't <laughs>
1: if you are a publication and you quote somebody who libels a person, right. you can be held liable for their libel. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he sued Alvin Dark as well, but I mean, I wouldn't sue my boss. Uh, probably <laughs> if I lived
0: in a pre-free agency <laughs> world. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was just listening to a, a podcast about the Giants of those years and about Alvin Dark and how it was kind of uh, – he wasn't really up to the task of bringing that clubhouse together with a lot of international players for the first time ever in baseball. I did not know <laughs> about this episode. So, yeah, I if he had succeeded, then – Presumably, no one would be able to write anything about players being bad again in a, in a subjective way. If you, if you made it objective and it wasn't some black box system that only Alvin Dark understood, I mean, you could say that his batting average was bad or his, he didn't hit a lot of homers or something, or, or it sounds like some sort of primitive when probability added, maybe that Alvin Dark was homebrewing. Yeah. So well, the, tr- so...
1: the tricky thing, as we know, is that all stats, all use of all stats, has an element of the subjective in it. I mean, this is something mm-hmm. that we learned, I think, in our career, it, uh, as we moderated to some degree and learned to be maybe more cautious and skeptical in our own writing, because you're always edit You're you're in, you know you're editing around the facts that you choose you're you're picking and choosing the parameters of of what counts as a as a stat in any individual situation and and if you're look magazine here here is it's even it's even more fraught because look magazine was quoting an objective measure it was alvin dark's subjective measure but for look magazine it was a stat right mm-hmm. he had more minuses according <laughs> To an expert's measuring system, they Mm -hmm. weren't saying Orlando Cepeda had hit bad home runs. They were saying that his manager's measuring system, which spit out weird (laughs) friggin' data, (laughs) uh, said that he hit bad home runs or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it. You could imagine first that this might have made it uh, that it might have forced writers in general. To be more, to use stats more at an earlier stage of, of all this, because you would really have to put an emphasis on objectivity. But I feel like it would probably not do that. You'd
0: probably no, have the opposite. Yeah. You'd be scared to use any stat. You'd be
1: scared to use any stat, right? You couldn't say, I mean, just imagine all the things that we <laughs> we could never have written Yeah, that uh, simply by virtue of being a combination of negative toward a player's abilities. And not totally provable.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the like the the inside edge fielding stuff. That's like good fielding plays and defensive misplays. Like all of that that get sued out of business. (laughs) I mean, if you
1: if you (laughs) if you were to cite Melvin Upton's war as being. You know, he's points. back to BJ now okay but well, he was Melvin when we were <laughs> yes, having the war true. discussion though mm-hmm. uh, about him and he was a free agent in his war i think his war one of the wars was like 0.7 and one of the wars was like 4.2 or something and if you cited the four, the 0.7 it could be in court, Fangraphs versus Baseball <laughs> Reference.
0: Yeah, no, I think that probably would have set the sabermetric movement way back, or just killed it before it started. It would We'd take all the tooth. Yeah, scouting. It'd take yeah. the
1: the teeth out of everything.
0: It would be like another Sam Miller article. Who would we think is the best player if we didn't have any stats, right? So
1: yeah, so I uh, two two just two little quick observations about this. One, not an observation, just repeating that Willie Mays testified in this they they actually had Willie Mays the biggest star athlete in the world at that time come to court to discuss whether the baby bull could ball out or not and that's incredible too like just imagine if right now Mike Trout was in court to defend Cole Calhoun's (laughs) platoon splits or something secondly we all know, and one of the things that comes through in biographies a lot of times of old-time players is that there was a different relationship between writers and players, and mm-hmm. that in particular, r- players had their sort of their secrets, their personal lives, and some of the the things that happened behind closed doors covered up. Even though it would have probably been newsworthy in our by our standards, it would have certainly been uh, provocative to the public, and the writers all knew about it. And so we tend to think, oh, wow, they had this. Cozy, cozy relationship, and I guess that uh, my feeling from reading these books is that that is probably mostly true between beat writers and and players. But in another sense, columnists at the time were just savage. They Mm -hmm. would, and they didn't like they were just they they weren't like citing facts or anything. They were just relentlessly negative toward even the biggest stars in the world. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Willie Mays had columnists who. Like local columnists who would just rip him to shreds over nothing. And uh, that's all. That's my whole story.
0: Well, I will point out, and I hope Orlando Cepeda is not listening because he's apparently pretty religious, but Jim Davenport did have a higher war in 1962 oh, than man. Orlando Cepeda did. <laughs> so oh, man. Alvin Dark, his rating system, he may have known more than everyone else did.
1: Wow. Yeah, let's see. I'm here really though,
0: uh, I shouldn't say this on a podcast that Orlando Cepeda might hear, but hopefully he'll he'll sue Sean Foreman instead of me. Cepeda finished
1: ahead of Davenport in MVP voting that year though. So Davenport should have sued all the, the writers who had a vote.
0: Yeah. Well, evidently it, it all ended well. I don't know whether they made up or not. They didn't get along at the time, but it looks like when Alvin Dark died, Cepeda said he was a great baseball man. So there's that. I guess it had a Happy ish ending. Hmm. I wonder what the the non baseball implications of that would have been. If that had been upheld, then would it have expended to other public figures? Would we not be able to criticize anyone?
1: Well, I think,
0: uh, what, like in in England? Right, you can't. Yeah. (laughs) That's how it works. Yeah. I don't don't know. Orlando Cepeda could have just taken down free speech (laughs) single handedly. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, I'm going to write about that sometime. All right, so we will take a quick break, and then we will roll Russell Carlton in here. This is a fake break, by the way. Ben and I
1: are gonna (laughs) stay stay with each other. (laughs) Yeah. The the elapsed time.
0: But Russell's not here, so there will be a break while we wait for Russell to join. That's true. Okay. our completely real break is concluded and we are back now with russell carlton baseball prospectus's longest tenured writer who has spanned his his tenure his reign has spanned five editors in chief of baseball prospectus including the two of us he has seen ownership groups come and go and now he is finally going to work for the new york mets and we wanted to have him on one last time, at least for now, just because you have graced the program so many times in the past, I believe, more than anyone else has. So welcome back yet again. Hi, Russell. Hello. <laughs> so you're gonna work for the Mets. I uh, I feel like I've done a lot of these exit interviews over the years because we've lost a whole lot of writers to baseball teams. So these always start sort of the same way. Tell us how this happened, and to the best of your knowledge, what you will be doing.
2: <laughs> so I it was actually end of uh, last last month, and I was in Cleveland. I was up visiting my uh, my parents for the holidays, and I was driving my I have one-year-old twins, and they were fussy, and so I took them out for a drive to hopefully get them a nap, and I heard my phone beep, and I thought it was my wife saying, you know, where are you, how are the twins doing? And so I got to a stoplight, and I looked down, and it was Adam Guttridge, who's an assi- assistant general manager for the Mets, who I had on my Facebook feed, and sent me a message and saying, hey, and, you know, and introduced and said, you know, can we talk? And so I uh, dr- kept driving around. I'm like, well, what, what's going on? And so later, I got back and uh, texted him back, and I said, hey, what's going on? And we we started chatting, and you know, one thing led to another. And the Mets had a, a position that they wanted to create that they thought I'd be good for. And sure enough, I, I thought it was a good idea what they were saying. So that's kind of how that came about. Thanks to my my uh, my boys uh, needing a nap. So <laughs> as to what I'll be doing, I I mean, I hate to sound Coy because it's I'm not trying to be coy. I don't exactly know what I'm going to be doing yet. I mean, I kind of have the idea of, you know, it's going to be a lot of the same type of research that I do at BP, probably with better data. But you know, we haven't we haven't gotten to the point where we're talking about you know what what are they going to be the specific you know, what, what areas are they going to want to focus in? And I'm mean, going have a couple of ideas and, but we haven't quite gotten to that level of detail yet now, it's just kind of an agreement in principle. And, and we're going to, in the next couple of days, I assume we're going to be filling in the gaps on that.
1: That mm-hmm. uh, is that surprising to you that it's this loose that, that they don't have a, a very specific vision for, for what they have you do and how you kind of like fit in as a, uh, you know, cog in the great corporate machine.
2: Well, not really, because I mean, the way they described the role was was more on the on the lines of, you know, we want we want people who who have the research experience and 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 that they that they they've identified and that have good research ideas. And some of it's going to be me pitching stuff to them and them saying, yeah, cool, go with that. And I'm sure some of it's also going to be, hey, you know, we're we want to do something along the, these lines. And 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 they were upfront about that. And they said, you know, some of that's going to be. Um, collaborating with people they have or they already have on staff, and some of it's going to be you know working in in pairs, or and then some of it's just going to be you know me sitting there running numbers and crunching stuff and seeing what comes out, and you know seeing if we can come up with a, a cool idea. Kind of the way I would I would just do a BP article. Um, <laughs> it's just that you know now it's just my my list of readers is going to shrink a lot.
1: I am yeah. <laughs> I am very impressed and also envious that you have been writing for twelve years and you still have cool research ideas to pitch. I listen I
2: thought you'd to great just podcasts, recycle. like Effectively Wild. You know? <laughs>
1: yeah, I figured you'd just recycle, and you'd come up with the 30-run manager, and they'd be all impressed with that because they didn't read it
2: the first time. I mean, we've, I... All, we've all done that. <laughs> I, it's, I mean, baseball's such a wonderful playground of, of, of human experience. I mean, there's, you know, I, I I wrote a book that my publisher will now be happy that I'm plugging called The Shift, The Next Evolution of Baseball Thinking. And, you know, because baseball is a game, it it puts humans in weird positions and tries to see what they're going to do. And there are just so many weird things that baseball makes you do That are kind of cool to poke at the humans that are playing it and see, you know, what, what comes of it. And being a psychologist by training, that's, that's what I do. So, you know, it it is the sort of thing where baseball just provides so much material that I think I could, I could be writing for another 50, 60, 70 years and it, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't run out of topics, at least that, that are out there. I might run out of topics just because I'm not smart enough to come up with another one.
1: I am curious. We, we of course, have um, compared to twelve. Am I right? Twelve years ago is that the right number? Twelve yeah, years that ago, yeah, sounds that
2: right. Yeah, I started it? writing it in two
0: thousand seven. That was at, at statistically speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Stat yep. speaking. Mm-hmm. And then you joined BP in two thousand nine, and then you left a bid, and then you came back.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. So two thousand seven, we're talking pre Pitch FX. Yep. Let alone everything else. And so in that twelve years, you have had access to, you know. Like like on an order of thousands of times, maybe more data and things that we couldn't imagine would ever be public, and so on and so forth. Has that? I'm I don't know. I'm, I don't even know if there's a question. How am I? <laughs> but but I'm curious to know if that has actually sort of slaked your uh sl- sl- slake slake is the wrong way thirst uh, stoked. You're stoked. Slaked means to satisfy, right? Yeah, I was going to yeah, say. So, it's, so. so has that stoked <laughs> your desire for more, uh, for, for the for the data that's behind closed doors? Are you, like, uh, is, like, one of the great allures here that you have access to their data now and things that you've wanted to research but you couldn't research in all this time because even with StatCast and even with everything else, it just still isn't possible? Yeah.
2: yeah kind of um i mean that that, that's part of it i mean that's the you know i i mean i haven't i haven't had the you know willy wonka and the chocolate factory moment where he opens the door and they see the room full of everything's made of candy and the chocolate river and i haven't i haven't had that moment of seeing what's in there i mean I, i i have an idea of what all is, is going to be in in that vault? Um, I mean, there's only so many ways that you can say that somebody grounded out to short on you know June 11th, and you know, so there there is that part of it. I think that some of it is also, you know, there are areas of of, of that I would consider ripe for research. That the kind of it isn't so much data that you need, but access. You know, something like player development. You know, teams keep those things very, very secret unless you're writing a book about it or something <laughs> like that. But, you know, it, it is that kind of ability to not only kind of do the research but also influence policy it is, is something that, you know, just as somebody who works in public health and, and does that as my day job where, you know, you, you get to do – you not only get to do the research – but you also then get to make policy recommendations, and sometimes people actually take you up on them, and you get to say, "Hey, you know that that was in part me." You know that that ability is the other part of the allure that that goes with it. You know, I, I mean the 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 data sets I'm sure will be cool, and it'll be fun to see. Oh, you guys have oh you, oh you 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 track that? That'll be interesting. But I think that I think that there's going to be more that I will personally be interested in and, and I'm gonna see if I can I can do I can get them to not only kind of leverage what they already have, but say, well, what if we collected this? What if we did this? And we opened up this whole new area that's that's out there to see if something's something's hiding in that area of baseball.
0: So we were just chatting before we started recording about the process of getting this job and people might imagine that you go through grueling interviews and you're subjected to hypotheticals and how much would this be worth and what decision would you make here and and that is how it works for some positions. Mm -hmm. But in your case, your resume is – your interview is is the last 12 (laughs) years really. It's like, hey, I've written – Thousands, millions of words about baseball. You know how I think. You know how I do analysis. It's all really laid out there in a much more comprehensive way than you could ever get a sense of in an interview.
2: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been on, I've done those kinds of interviews for other positions and some of the things where they say, oh, you know, answer these five questions. And uh, I've done that. And this, one of the questions that, that the Mets asked me was, you know, what are, what are the, what are the areas that you have that, that you would want to pursue? And I mean, we'll go to my baseball prospectus author page, and I mean that basically sums it up right there. I mean, that's that's you know me kind of going, hmm, what shall I write about this week? And coming up with whatever idea I could come up with, and then crunching out whatever I could. And I mean, there are a couple areas where I don't I, that I would love to do. I just don't have access to the kind of data that I would need to do it, and that I mentioned. But that was. You know, that was that was nice to be able to, to point to that and say, Okay, well there's the answer to that question. Next.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm kind of mad at the Mets. I, I take this personally because you were right in the middle of conducting some research that would have <laughs> answered a question that I had posed on this podcast. And now I'll never know the answer because they hired you. Just a couple weeks ago, I, I just did a passing thought. I wondered whether we could detect whether playing in a winter league actually benefits a player's development. If you just compared like two similar players and one of them plays in a winter league and the other doesn't, does the guy who played in the winter league get better faster. And you were gathering data. You were going to do an article on that. And then the Mets hired you. And now you can't do that article. And now, I don't know, am I supposed to do it myself? I don't want to do it myself. So what am I supposed to do?
2: Well, I mean, you have plenty of listeners out there. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, the data are out there. You just have to scoop them up and and run it. I mean, I I heard that and I went, ah, that's a cool idea. That's a cool question. It's the off season. You know, there's nothing, there's no There's no Major League Baseball going on, but, oh, there's Winter League stuff, and I wonder, and... You've been um, a great
0: resource to me over the years, not only with with help with my own articles, but occasionally I'll get an idea where I'll think, I want to know the answer to this, but for whatever reason, I... Just don't want to write this one myself maybe it's, sure. it's too complicated or i don't know it won't fit at the site i'm currently writing for whatever and i will just pose it to you or sometimes you'll just tear it and take it upon yourself and so all these questions i had have been answered by you uh for no charge and that's been wonderful for me
2: the great uh, the wait, great wait, wait, article wait, 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 what was that no charge thing hang
0: on a second here <laughs>
1: the, the great article i always had uh in mind for you that i never mentioned and you might have done it, so if if you did, I apologize. I I've, read, I've probably have read I don't know 300 articles by you, and you've probably have written 600. Uh, yeah. So I I'm not ashamed. But you one time wrote an article about whether Brandon Inge really did uh, make the A's 29 games better. Oh yeah, uh, mm. in, 19, in 2012, <laughs> and you looked at whether Brandon Inge's teammates hit more home runs when Brandon Inge is there. Uh, than when they than when he's not. Um, and I always wanted to get you to replicate that for basically all the player seasons in history and see if there is actually one clubhouse chemistry god who stands above them all.
2: I think that one I, I know I didn't do that, but I think somebody has done something like that at some point. Like I seem to remember reading something along those lines. I don't know there's I mean there's just there's just so much out there. And you know I try to read as much of it as I can, it, but you know, it, it and, but after a while it all kind of kind of melds together. So
0: yeah, I think I've said this to you that it, it's like the rule thirty four of sabermetrics is if you can think of it, Russell Carlton has done a study on it because mm. it's just you've been writing for so long and so consistently and often on analytical topics where it's like you started with a question and then you tried your best to answer it, and so almost anything you could think of it, it might be from two thousand ten or something, and maybe it's time Time to redo it but there's usually a, a russell carlton take on whatever question i have
2: oh if it's from 2010 you definitely have to, i definitely <laughs> need to rewrite that
0: <laughs> so um if you uh, if in this interview or
1: in this discussion or if in any interview anytime whatever somebody actually did ask you like okay send me five clips that show you at your best that show you what you can do and that show how how you think and that you're especially proud of and maybe five is too many for on the spot, but like three, what, what would be like maybe the three articles that you wrote that you're most proud exist and that people who maybe have not read
2: 300 of your articles uh, could start with? I mean, the, the ones that I, that come to my mind that, you know, that I, I kind of look back now and, and, you know, knowing that I'm going to be disappearing for a while, that I'm happy are just kind of out. There's a legacy. There's the, there's the series that I did with Kate Morrison at BP um, on front office hiring and how that's done and, and and what are some of the the pitfalls that go along with that one. That one's I was especially proud of that when we wrote it and you know and I can only claim half the credit for that one but you know at least I can it was a four parter so I guess that's two mm-hmm. and I mean there's the one that you know I'm like methodologically most proud of was. You kind of made a sideways reference to the thirty-run manager one. That was that that was a cool one. It was you know my foray into you know trying to figure out does a manager have an effect on his players in terms of helping them deal with the grind. And I thought that was a I, I thought that was it, it. kind of came together nicely. There was one I did on the uh, the intentional walk and why I think they should they should actually throw four fake pitches. And, and I really liked that one. I thought that was, that just kind of, I remember after I was done with that one, I was really, really super proud of it and to send it off. So, I mean, those are the ones that just kind of jumped to my mind, but uh, you know, there's every once in a while I'll, I'll be surprised that I wrote something. Like I'll, I remember one time I was, um, I had an idea for an article and I was, I was like, okay, let me go to Google and see if anybody's done anything like, like that. And sure enough, yep. I had back in 2013.
0: Rule 34.
2: I was, I rule 34 myself. Yes. And that was, uh, you know. So I, I've I've done some of that, and there was the the one though that that randomly sticks out to me is I wrote an April Fool's article, and it was it was about BP was was going to be starting Mongolian yak racing prospectus, and it was a bunch of I mean it was it was kind of a bunch of in jokes and wink at the camera type of things that you know for April Fool's Day, and it was just kind of fun and silly to write. And I threw that one out and, and I always liked the chance to, to just kind of be silly and, 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 uh, and engage in a, in a bunch of, in a bunch of in jokes, basically, uh, every once in a while. So I don't know, maybe the Mets will let me do that once in a while. So
1: I loved, I loved the 30 run manager one, partly because I loved the the methodology. It just seemed like such a a creative and and elegant solution to this really high level problem that I wouldn't think most people would be able to solve and I also thought that it was great because even if you even if you thought that it was total BS and that the manager is not worth 30 runs it was a great uh, way of thinking about the grind generally in a way that was really interesting and concrete and I think about the 30 run manager a lot I almost wish that it had you had only found like a 20 run manager because it would be easier it would be. It would be like the the smaller the number, the easier it would be to believe, but the less the less memorable it would be. Thirty runs is a lot of runs. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, I also uh, really love. I was just thinking about this. In fact, today, unrelated to all of this, because uh, I think about it a lot. In your book, you have one sentence or one, I guess, one section, one half page or whatever about something that I think explains a lot about modern baseball, which is that. Uh, baseball GMs of our generation, yours and mine, grew up playing video games and we all remember playing video games where you beat Mario and then you I mean you're not going to go outside so then now you play Mario and you try to beat it as fast as you can and then you try to beat it with as many points as possible and then you try to beat it where you get the 5,000 flag every time and then you try to beat it uh, without ever getting uh, shrunken or you try to beat it without ever getting a mushroom and you do the whole thing small and so on and so forth. And so GMs grew up where you're not playing against another person. You're playing against a a game itself, like the, the very concept of the game. You're trying to beat it in as many ways as you can beat it. And so it, a lot of, a lot of baseball strategy in 2018 and 2019 makes a lot of sense when you think about GMs in that way, trying to
2: essentially beat a game. Yeah. I mean, it was the, the idea of one player mode. I mean, there's, you don't need another person to play a game. You just play against a computer and the computer doesn't care if you're totally scamming it or if you figured out its weakness, you just kind of keep going. And, you know, I mean, there are people who have studied chess or blackjack or stuff like that and, and tried to figure it out, you know, how do you, how do you beat those games? And, you know, now you had 10 year olds in their, you know, the comfort of my home and you know trying to get to willamette valley and trying to figure out okay well what's what's the best way to do this and if you if you mess up you just kind of hit reset and you try it again but yeah i mean we i i i think that's one of the one of the most underrated pieces of modern history is this idea where you can have a one-player game that is in still some way competitive and that what that what that mindset is—that I am, I am going to break the game—and I can even collaborate with someone else to beat the game. And now, my my social interaction around this game isn't competitive; it's collaborative. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's and 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 the the game itself is is what you're trying to beat.
0: Yeah, I really think maybe I'm not completely impartial here because of our long association, but I think you have been. One of the most influential sabermetricians in the the post-James era, and not because you have littered your wake with a whole host of acronyms and and new stats <laughs> that we all, you know, you didn't invent FIP or WAR or something. But you have done so much statistical analysis and plenty of gory math. And you've done many, many articles where you've concluded this is probably worth the third of a win. And the third of a win is worth this much on the free agent market. So teams are possibly costing themselves, you know, some tiny sliver of an advantage. And if you find that sort of thing working for the Mets, that could be very, valuable and probably be worth more to them than they're paying you. But I think that you have just constantly pushed us in all of these different directions where as I, I think there was maybe before you at BP and elsewhere a tendency to say we have all the answers and we know a lot and it's true We've we've learned a lot but you've Always been asking what we don't know And it's like your first Piece at BP after you Made your comeback was called Hire Joe Morgan which was just Contrary to the, the typical take Obviously not because you were trying to be Contrarian but you were just making the Point that hey, we have a lot to learn, and you have pointed out things like player development, and we're early to stating you know the thesis statement of my book essentially, which is uh, quoted in my book, oh, wow. and uh, you're you're probably quoted in that book and also the books sam and I wrote more than oh yeah anyhow you're and all over the place
1: probably every magazine article I've ever written has had a, a quote <laughs> yeah. either a direct quote from you because I sometimes would ask <laughs> you or a, a block quote from something you wrote.
2: Yeah.
0: And it's like, you know, clubhouse chemistry and and managers and all this stuff where it was like something that we really couldn't quantify, although sometimes you would try to and come up with approaches there. But even just to say, hey, this is probably worth something, we should look into this, even if you didn't have a a grand conclusion about it, that was, I I think, really valuable and spurred a lot of people to do a lot of interesting research. So thanks.
2: (laughs) Thank you. You know what's funny though?
1: I think the funniest thing is that your most influential thing, like if you had to to pick one thing that Russell Carlton's work is famous for, it is stabilization rates for
2: stats. And you, Oh, boy, here we go. And, and you
1: you have been at wits end for years because it is essentially always misused by everybody who cites it. Yeah. Right? Pretty much. So uh now you are going to a place where the things that you suggest will determine whether, you know, maybe whether Noah Syndergaard throws a, a change up or not. Does it uh, does the does does the um sort of uh, long perilous game of telephone that happens between your work and the end user kind of scare you now that there
2: are real stakes? Yeah. I mean, if there's something I can take from it, I mean, I, I wrote that original article back in 2007 that eventually became Stabilization. And and and, and for a while, it was really cool because I'm like, oh, people are quoting me. That's so awesome. And But the more I, I looked at it, the more I realized that the way it had gone and the way that I had initially wanted it what I had wanted it for were so opposite of each other or not even so opposite of each other, but they just, they weren't, they weren't in sync. I mean, I, I originally had this idea of, gee, if I'm doing a sample, if I'm taking a sample of, you know, player seasons and I want to look, you know, correlate home run rate with single rate or whatever. And you know, how, how many plate appearances should I have as a good cutoff in my sample? And, you know, I came up with, with with decent cutoffs for that. And the idea was that it would just be useful for kind of large N research, taking a look at, at kind of the broad picture of hitters or pitchers or whatever it was. And people started using it on an individual level, and it took me a while until I realized, wait a minute, that's, that's probably not a good idea, and then to the point where... You know, I, I've, I've, I think I, I've written an article that like each of the last four April's or something like that, where I kind of go, yeah, please don't do that. And in, in different ways for different reasons. And, and, and I mean, now going forward, I mean, there is, you know, a certain amount of responsibility in terms of, you know, I'm going to be giving live feedback to people who are going to be making actual baseball decisions. And, you know, it, it is something that I think has taught what was a very naive, 27-year-old version of myself, you know, here's here's a here's something that if you get too far out over your skis can happen. Um, that hopefully you know the 39-year-old version of myself isn't gonna make.
0: Another influential thing you wrote about, it, I think, was feeding minor leaguers and minor league conditions which at the time i think you were mostly writing about from the standpoint of hey this is silly that teams are not doing this it wouldn't cost that much relative to what they would gain whereas now i guess we talk about it more in terms of like ethics and and these teams just should pay this because they have the money but in a sense we've pivoted to talking about things like that in that way, because it has happened in, in the year since you first wrote about that. Lots of teams are not paying <laughs> their minor leaguers, but at least feeding them, which is something. And that was something, I don't know if you were the first to really point that out, but I don't recall thinking about it much before you wrote about that. And then suddenly it was like the obvious answer that everyone had when asked, like, what could teams do to gain an advantage? It was like, well, you know, take care of your minor leaguers. And that was something that maybe came out of your background and your your other professional life in developmental psychology, which there have been lots of sabermetricians who've just been moonlighting and have had impressive science-y jobs that have informed their research. But I don't know, have there been other people with that particular background? Because it, it seems like that has... Driven a lot of your baseball
2: work, you know. I, I've I've come across people who were you know psychology majors or said, oh yeah, I've got a, a background in 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 psych and I read your stuff and, and I I don't I'm trying to think off the top of my head. And, I'm, and I'm, of course, somebody's going to point out, oh, what about this person? I'm totally going to swing and miss <laughs> on that. And I'm sorry, person, who I'm totally forgetting who you are, but I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I have the thing with with feeding minor leaguers. When I wrote that, I was actually reading Dirk Hayhurst, mm-hmm. and I was reading his book, and he talked about that. And I was actually, I remember, I was on my way to a child psychology conference for work, and so I mean, it all kind of fit together. I was on the plane reading the book, and. And sure enough, there was this, uh, this idea that he brought up and I'm like, I should write about that. And, and that's, that, that's where it kind of came out. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of the stuff that I find interesting stems from the fact that, you know, I, I spent way too many years in, in graduate school, studying human behavior and studying human development and. And so I ask a lot of questions around, you know, how do people make decisions, but then also how do people grow and change? And, you know, when Hayhurst was talking about, you know, just how they ate on the, uh, in the minor leagues, I thought, well, that's, you know, kind of fundamental right there. And it struck a chord with me. And then, you know, I started doing some math around it and, but it was, it is something that I have always very, very specifically tried to make a part of my work and I will continue to try to make part of my work because, I mean, it's just the way that I think, I know there are a lot of people out there who, um, who have made their mark, uh, in, in, in sabermetric writing who, who have also specifically, and, and I think for the benefit of, of everybody brought who they are professionally into it. And, you know, whether that's, you know, as in, in, Kind of Alan Nathan being the physics uh, the physics guy, and you know he's an actual physics professor, or mm-hmm. you know some of the some of the people who have economics degrees and and you know working from from that angle, you know that it's it's something that you know I I encourage people that you know if you this is something that seems interesting to you, you know don't be afraid to insert who you are and what you find interesting into your writing because you know it's going to it, it you are going to you might think, "Oh, nobody will care," but you know when you when you find somebody who actually really knows what they're talking about on a subject, that that's usually a really interesting person to talk to, um, and hopefully a really interesting person to to read something that they wrote.
0: Mm-hmm. This is actually your second farewell to the internet, which doesn't happen <laughs> a lot because generally, when a, an analyst writer goes to a team, they stay there. But you are going to be working remotely. You're not relocating and you're not quitting your day job. So you could come back to us again someday. I I hope that uh, you do selfishly. But of course, if (laughs) if you are enjoying what you're doing, then I hope that you get to keep doing it. But it is not often that someone leaves and then comes back. They tend to stick. So I don't know if enough time has elapsed that you can talk about that first gig and what you may have learned from it. But I'm curious whether that affected your subsequent writing in any way. Yeah.
2: I mean, I I worked for the Indians from 2010 to 2012 in a capacity much like this where, you know, I wasn't, I I happened to be living in Cleveland when I I first got the gig, but I actually moved to Atlanta in the middle of it. But I was working remotely and, you know, I was doing for them more project-based stuff that they were you know, they would send me questions and I would I would try to find the answers as best as I could, given my you know, they, they, they gave me a good amount of freedom to kinda of look around and see what was out there. I mean it, i I think that at that time the thing that, that most affected my writing when I finally came back to to writing in public was that it was a good it was a good break from I, I had been writing for at that point three years on a on a weekly schedule before I left the public eye. And, you know, there's that, you know, you got to get something out by next week sort of thing. And it it was actually good for my development as an analyst to not be beholden for a while to that and to be able to say, hmm, I, I want to go a little deeper on this topic. And they would ask me to and I, I would have the opportunity to do that and to take something that was more of a, you know, a couple of weeks worth of work. To really find the answer to, and I I will say that you know coming back and, and going back into that weekly thing, uh, that weekly grind, I think that I carried that there were other topics that I had not previously felt confident to to kind of tackle, or kind of arcs of thought that I had not previously thought to tackle because of the weekly schedule. Because I figured, oh, I I can't I can't turn this around in a week. And I felt more confident in my abilities as a researcher and also that, you know, there were just other other ways of looking at the game that were kind of a fresh perspective that that I could then, you know, I mean, I can't I I did reduplicate any of my my Indian stuff, but there were, you know, pieces where I was like, oh, you know, what if I kind of took this angle on this other topic and I'm, I know I'm being vague, but you know I, I have to be for for NDA purposes. But oh, that's um, a long lasting NDA. You know, it it is, is, but does, it's... does it really?
1: Do, does it does it really still apply? <laughs> it's been seven years. Does that NDA?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, I I make it a point to try and respect the that NDA. Um, just, I mean, I, the the Indians were very kind. They gave me an opportunity that that I I I greatly treasure. And and to, I mean, to this day, a, a lot of the same people that were there when I was there, still there. And I I think very fondly of them. So just out of respect for them, I, I do try to respect that.
0: Well, you were an editor's dream, which uh, may not matter much to the reader, but you always had a topic just about. And you didn't require much work on the back end, because occasionally you'd get really smart writers who would do brilliant analysis and the end result would be great but it would take some work to to get it there. It's just, it's rare as many people have said to find someone who can write in a really engaging way and also do the, the gory math. So you were one of the few who could do that. And, uh, I'm sorry for us that we are losing the the pleasure of reading you on a weekly basis, but it is the the Mets gain. I guess maybe the last thing, I I wonder, this has all been sort of a a sideline for you, this whole baseball thing (laughs) for the last 12 years. It's not what you set out to do. It has never been your primary employment, and yet you've gotten to do all this cool stuff. You've gotten to write for BP for almost a decade. You wrote a book that was really good. You have worked for multiple baseball teams, all while continuing to do the thing that you expected to do the whole time. So have you always felt like baseball is the, the side job and your main job is the main job, or does that line get blurry at times? <laughs>
2: it has always been my secret double life mm-hmm. um i have always been i mean i i started this work in graduate school and you know before kids and and i mean that's a lot's happened to me just personally in the last 12 years but yeah i mean this it it is it has always been for the most part hobby time you know it it has always been you know during the day i am a public health worker and I do research on children's mental health issues and suicide prevention and community health interventions and stuff like that. And, you know, and then at night I have this other thing that I do and, you know, some people knit, some people, um, I don't know, collect seashells, some people, you know, whatever, whatever they're into. And, and my thing was I, when I was in graduate school, I needed a free hobby, because uh, I was a grad student living on a grad student' salary. And I hit on that because there was a whole bunch of free data, and I had some data courses under my belt and and I loved baseball. So I mean it 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 started out as a hobby. It has always been a hobby. And it's weird because, you know, I, I remember, you know, the first time that that somebody who worked for a team said that, oh, you know, we read your thing and it was really good and we liked it and we, we kind of used it. And I'm like, well, Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, just happened. (laughs) And it's, it's a very odd thing to, to say that, you know, there, there have actually been people who are willing to pay me to, to to do that, to, to actually influence a a real live baseball team. And I never set out to do that specifically. I mean, I'm happy it happened, but it, it it is a very odd feeling when your hobby becomes something that is, is kind of bigger, but at the same time, you have to realize that just from in how I organize my life uh, as a human being that, you know, it still kind of has to have that. It is it is strictly still in the hobby box. And that has been a, that's been a tough balance to strike over the years.
0: Yeah. I thought of one more thing to ask you, which is that I, I'm always hearing from people in baseball that... They could not get the job that they currently hold if they were applying for it today, because just it's become so much more competitive, and the criteria that teams are looking for are just getting loftier all the time. I, I someone said that to me today that he is he is like has an impressive job in baseball. And who was it? He's <laughs> he is, he's he's uh, quoted in my book. You can guess who it is, and that he's surrounded by all these people who are like speaking on a higher level than he is, and and you see that in sabermetrics too, like you can do all sorts of things that Sam and I can't do that we have to ask someone like you to do for us. And then there are people who can do things that you can't do. There are people who know programming languages that you don't know and are you know familiar with these cutting edge techniques that have just arisen in the years since you've started doing this. So is that something that impairs your analysis? Or do you think that being able to ask the questions is really the important thing and that you can kind of figure out a way to answer them once you come
2: up with them. I think that I benefit from the fact that well okay let me start here. The the foundation of any good whether it's an article or if you're working for a team some kind of intervention that or innovation that that they're going to work on is a good idea to start with. And I have started from I mentioned my my background in psych and how I try to draw on that. You know, it's weird because in 2007, when I was first starting to do this, there was kind of this, there was kind of sabermetrics and it was just one thing. And there was a certain, I don't know, understanding that to be a good sabermetrician, you kind of had your fingers in every piece of it because there were only like two or three pieces at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was p- uh, pre-pitch FX, and so a lot of the stuff that was going on was kind of seasonal correlation, and we had play-by-play data, and how can we parse that out a little bit, and some stuff around strategy. And, you know, now just the explosion of other areas that have become fair game as data, has, I mean, it, it has it has become to the point where, you know, there are areas of sabermetrics, which I, you know, I consider myself to be... Fluent in terms of being able to read it and go, okay, I, I see where you're going with that. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I, I don't know that I would have the ability without really dedicating some time to it to do meaningful analysis in those areas. And I think that when I realized that that was okay, that I didn't have to be the generalist anymore, and I could stick to, okay, this is this is what I'm, I think I'm good at. These are the areas that interest me. And then, by extension, they're also the they also happen to be the areas where, you know, I have training in how to parse that out, or I've done stuff over the years where I can just kind of pull stuff from my code library. I think that that's the biggest transition I've seen over the last ten years in sabermetrics, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's that is going to have I think that's I think that's the thing that when people think about oh you know could I get into this kind of writing they have the idea that, well, you got to know everything. Well, you don't. You have to be, I think it helps if you're you're good at one particular thing and that you can be conversant enough in the rest of it to where you can either nod your head or go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right.
0: Well, you will be missed as long as this hiatus lasts. And the good news is that anyone listening who is thinking, I just heard of this Russell Carlton guy somehow. Now he's leaving before I had a chance to appreciate him. He has left a very large library, so... Go get the shift, and you can spend the next couple of years combing through his archives at Baseball Prospectus, and who knows, maybe he'll be back writing again someday. But you can find him on Twitter at Pizza Cutter Four. I don't know whether you'll still be able to command people to read things now that you are working for a team. But uh. Uh, we talked about that,
2: and that's uh, not not as much. I, no. I I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. I will probably kind of do the. If 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 you've ever followed somebody who got hired by a team, they get really boring really quick. Yeah. I can't, <laughs> I can't really talk that much about baseball and really what else is there to talk about on Twitter. So <laughs> sure. <laughs> so <laughs> you can, you can follow me at pizza cutter Four, but, um, and I'd appreciate it. And I'll, I'll be sitting there going, Oh, more people followed me. That's cool. But and <laughs> you won't really get much out of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Russell, and good luck in your next life.
2: Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having me on all these uh, these times over the years, and and uh, I I will be out here listening. I can I'm still allowed to listen, so
0: mm-hmm. and doing interesting analysis that we will never get to see. That's just, right. Just, <laughs> just take our ideas and <laughs> we will oh, just put oh, them.
2: And 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 for those of you out there doing podcasts and and writing and wondering, oh, I will be reading and I will be staling, <laughs> and because because every team does.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Russell, and thank you, Sam. You're welcome. All right, that will do it for today. Another sabermetrician bites the dust, at least from a public perspective. have done a lot of these episodes over the years, talking to someone who is leaving the public to work for a team. It's always a bittersweet moment because I'm happy for them that I get to do a cool thing, and I'm sad for everyone else that we don't get to enjoy their work anymore. But if you're a Mets fan, maybe you will indirectly enjoy Russell's work. If you enjoy our work on this podcast, you can keep it going by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash effectively wild The following five listeners have already pledged their support katie razor shane shuby benjamin litvin sean Vizyak and dan friedman thanks to all of you you can also join our facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild russell carlton's in there Though he may be a bit less active than he has been in the past You can send your questions and comments For me and Jeff to podcast at Or if you are a supporter on Patreon You can message us through that site We will probably get to some emails next time You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild On iTunes and other podcast platforms Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance While you're picking up Russell Carlton's book, The Shift You can pre-order mine, The FEP Machine Coming out later this spring And Jeff and I will be back to talk to you very soon
1: we gonna move, move way on down the line. A job we been standing in one place for too long a time. Yeah, when, yeah, when,
2: and when I hear that robin song, well I know it won't be long. Find out where we belong, and we're starting a new life. And we're starting a new life starting a new life We're starting life yeah, we're starting...